long sections of Scripture. In your bulletin, I wrote down Deuteronomy 2, because at the beginning of the book, I just defaulted to, all right, we'll go to the next chapter. Then I realized, uh uh-oh, not uh uh-oh, that's a terrible way to put it. We're going to read two chapters. I'm going to read two chapters, and I want you to listen. And this is how I want you to listen. Uh, On our website, uh, one of the headings under About Us, or I think it's About Us, is the History of Reformation. We haven't added to that section in a while. I don't think we've added the section of organization and buying this building. We need to do that. But the reason we have a History of Reformation OPC is so that visitors who are not acquainted with us may get to know us. But the real reason is so that we can brag about how good God has been to us. It's a way that we get to show off the goodness of God. When David decided to number the troops... God said to David, what are you doing? Because David was numbering not for the glory of God, but for his own glory. There is actually a book in the Bible called Numbers. It is a justified, God-honoring reflection of his sovereign rule over his people. And so when we read the book of Deuteronomy, let us remember this. It's a lot of verses. I'm reading two chapters. But I want you to hear with these ears. God is telling his people through history how they are to think of him, how they are to think of themselves, and how they are to go forward in righteousness. History for the Christian is precept. It is teaching. It is principle. It isn't just All right, let's hear the story. It is infallible, and so it is therefore useful for us in the pursuit of righteousness. All right, let's get to it. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Wilderness years, and then some victories of Israel, and then, of course, the tragedy of Moses. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. Then the Lord said to me, you have been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread upon Because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them for money that you may eat. And you shall also buy water of them for money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on away from our brothers, the people of Israel, I'm sorry, Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road from Eloth and Ezion Geber. Then we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Amim. 
The Horites also live in Seir formerly, but the people of Israel, I'm, gosh, I keep doing this. Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now rise up and go over the brook of Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years. It's a lot of walking. Until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So, as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites call them Zemumim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites. And they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place, rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kadamoth to Sion, the king of Heshbon, the words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sion and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sion came out against us, he and all his people to battle at Jaez. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction Every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors, only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Areor, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands, only to the land of the sons of Ammon. You did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God 
had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og the king of Bashan came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og, also the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction. As we did to Sion, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children, but all the livestock and all the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon, the Sidonians called Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites called it Sanir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salak, Saleka and Edri, kingdoms of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, For only God, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length. That's 13 feet, almost 14 feet long. And four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is the region of Argob, I gave to half tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair the Manasite took all the region of Argob, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Gerashites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havor Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites, and to the Gadites, I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border. As far as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites, the Arabah also, with the Jordan as the border, the, from Chinnereth, as far as the sea of the Arabah, the sea salt, I'm sorry, the salt sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers, as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan, then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Last section. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth? 
who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of his people and he shall put them in possession of that land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. And now verse one of chapter four. O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Let me pray. O Lord, we ask that you might give us wisdom, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. This evening I want to talk about how God uses history to teach us something of himself, something about ourselves, about what he requires of us, not only in terms of doctrine, but allegiance. History for the Christian. And not just infallible history. All of history. I remember my mom saying this to me all the time as a child. Those who do not learn from history are... Doomed to repeat it. We see that now. I've now lived long enough to live that. I've studied enough of history, whether it's the history of the Soviet Union and the rise of socialism and communism and what I see happening in the West today. It's the cycle. It is the cycle of power against power, the strong oppressing the poor, The wise, the fool. We see this great cycle. It is a cycle of men who cannot see past their own noses. How much more the wisdom and instruction of infallible history. If you wish to know how to live a life that is hidden in Christ, that is honoring to God, do not turn only to the, what we often call the didactic portions of Scripture or the New Testament, or the words of Jesus, but see all of Scripture as the testimony of our faithful Messiah as to how we are to live. History for the Christian is everything. It gives us a future. It gives us a hope. Two points that I want to make regarding this section. The first, history as precept. History as precept. And then second, our history and his exhortation. Our history and his, meaning the Lord's, exhortation. Let's look at this first point, history as precept. So, quick commentary on our own present circumstances. When we think of the history of the church, we think of the history of the church always struggling with its circumstances. In the early church, the church had to deal with the persecutions of Rome. Seventy years of torment. Even longer than that, really, but really several hard decades. 
And then there was the season of the church councils. If you think of the church councils, uh, think of church councils like a presbytery meeting or a general assembly. Of course, those meetings were filled with men who would come missing eyes, missing limbs. Some of them had been dipped in oil. They were scarred and bruised and beaten. They gathered as those who suffered for the gospel for the sake of the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. And then the church entered into another kind of season when Constantine declared the church, the Christian church, to be the religion of the nation. And a compromise set in there. It wasn't the torment of those who hated Christ. It was the creeping in of ease and convenience and comfort. This first great persecution, followed by a time of, of, of really ease. And then you have centuries following that, where the church sort of became insular and insulated and was more concerned with the hierarchy of its leadership. And then you have the time of the Reformation. I know there's a lot of history I'm skipping over. I'm talking about those moments of great persecution. The persecution of the church and the Reformation was up until that point slight compared to the Reformation. The time of the church's persecution, the Protestant church's persecution was great indeed. Many people were killed. Many people suffered for the sake of the gospel at the hands of the rich and the powerful. And then from that time of Rome, I mean from the Reformation, even to our own time, the 20th and 21st century, we see now today uh, persecutions that are... No, more Christians died in the 20th century than all the centuries combined. The church is always in the midst of some trial. And the way in which we survive these trials is we remember the history that we have as a people. We remember the history of God's faithfulness. We remember the history of our own unfaithfulness. We find that our foundation that is laid in Christ Jesus is a strong foundation. And it is a foundation that wasn't even just laid at the cross. It was laid in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. God, when he promised for enmity to be set between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we find the foundation of the gospel promise that God has a special people that he has chosen for himself and he loves them and is fighting for them. So what we are enduring now and the challenges that await us today are not new. The writer of Ecclesiastes writes, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. It sounds almost like Dr. Seuss, that particular passage, doesn't it? It's poetic. It's meant to be. It's meant to be a, a life verse. We do not live in unique circumstances as much as we want to believe it. No, the second generation is much like the first. And the second generation of Israel will be faced with the same challenges that the first generation of Israel was faced with. And it is really this. Will you follow God and take Him at His word? Will you follow God and see all that He has done? And trust that he will continue to do as he has promised. Will you heed the warnings of God's past acts of judgment? Will you consider his reward? 
His faithfulness, His mercy, and His grace, even in your lives. We, like this second generation, find ourselves in similar circumstances. We have been delivered out of Egypt, out of the land of sin and death. We have been baptized. And we are called in faithfulness to serve the Lord by keeping covenant with Him. And so Moses spills much ink. We read it all, or I read it all here. Chapter 2, really it's chapter 1, 2, and 3, but I didn't think three chapters was appropriate for the first sermon in the sermon series. Plus, I'm losing my voice. The wilderness years. God gives very clear driving instructions. This is where you're to go, and this is what you're to do. This is what has happened. For 38 years, they wandered, and then for the last two years, they defeat the king of Sion and the king of Og as they approach the border from the east. That is the border of the land of promise. Moses recounts history. It's not hagiography. Hagiography is untrue history where you focus only on the good things. It would be the shortest biography in history if someone were to write a hagiography of my life. (laughs) Right? Isn't that how it often feels? The high points? Looking at things through rose-colored glasses? No. Moses tells it like it is because the Holy Spirit tells it like it is. Warts and all. And what we find is that though God brought judgment upon Israel because of their unfaithfulness and their unwillingness to go up into the land as God had called them, He was still with them. Parents, maybe your kids have asked you this question after you've disciplined them. Do you hate me? Maybe they think that and they don't say it. What Do my parents not like me? Do they not love me? Of course, the question is, yes, I love you. Of course, I love you. No, I do not hate you. I'm not pleased with your behavior. But the very reason that I'm bringing discipline to you is because I want you to be the kind of person that you are now not yet. You need to grow in grace and humility and righteousness. And the way in which God has prescribed that to happen between a parent and a child is discipline. God himself, the scripture tells us, disciplines, admonishes those whom he loves. This wandering is not a testimony of the lack of God's covenant faithfulness. What would that have looked like? He would have just left. The cloud would have just gone. And they would never have seen him or heard from him again. Complete abandonment. But instead, God leads them away from the border as an act of judgment in order to instruct them how they are to listen and obey. And for 38 years, they wandered. And then for two of those 40 years, they were moving towards the land, defeating these kings and these cities. God is giving them victory. In the midst of judgment. I do think we often think of God the way we think of ourselves. We are schizophrenic and bipolar in the way we apply discipline. We are either really happy or really angry. 
Righteous judgment is judgment that is looking for righteousness. The scriptures speak of our Lord as the one who does not break the bruised reed or snuffs the smoldering wick. He is gentle and measured and cunning in his discipline. And the history of Israel teaches us that even in God's judgment, he is showing his love, his compassion, and his favor. He is not fickle. He is patient. And his patience is tested faithfulness. You don't have to be patient with perfect people, do you? No patience is required. None whatsoever. And the scriptures speak time and time again of the patience of God. Why? It is always in relationship to unrighteous sheep like ourselves. And so this evening I read both of these chapters because I want us to see that the victories that we see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 are victories that are accomplished in the midst of judgment. God is kind. And that he does not give up on his purposes simply because we fail. And it brings us this question. How have we been unfaithful? Is what we're experiencing now the judgment of God against the church? And will God continue to use us even in the midst of judgment? And the answer to that last question is absolutely yes. As one elder told me, God knows how to draw a perfectly straight line with a crooked stick. He's calling me the crooked stick. He can use anyone to do and accomplish his will. And the benefit and the beauty of being a child of God is that he brings temporary judgment upon us so that we might be more useful to him. He's shaping us. He's breaking us down and building us up. And these 40 years in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, God hasn't stopped speaking. First part of chapter 2. Second part of chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3. God hasn't stopped working through his people. And the end of chapter 3 reminds us of this. He cannot be compromised. This is not how we think of judgment and kindness. Maybe children, you think of it this way. Mom and dad or mom or dad said something like, you did this wrong so you can't do X for a week. But maybe tomorrow if they're happy, I can go to them and say, you know, can we make it three days? What does a righteous parent do? They stay true to their word. No. Now, maybe they shouldn't have said a week. God sticks to his judgment. And it is a righteous judgment. And this is the beauty of all of our interactions with God. His authority is neither arbitrary in that it is not derived from any, and that it is holy, and it has a purpose. And if it is painful, it is because he has intended it for it to be painful, so that we might learn something. 
You cannot go to God and say, God, I know you said X, but can we do it this way? And God does not regret handing down judgments. All that God has decreed is good and right and is according to his will and word. And I'm saying all of these things, not only to remind us that God is a better parent than we will ever be, parents, and that Jesus was a child that is greater than you will ever be, children, but that the narratives of God's dealing with his people are substance for us. They are food for us. Because God continues to interact with his people in the same way. Take the great sins of leaders in the church. In fact, I have a quote later in my sermon, but I'm going to go ahead and share it now. It's from John MacArthur. If it were not for Jesus Christ, Christianity would have no appeal. That's such a John MacArthur kind of quote. His point is, Christians are at times the worst examples of Christianity. There is a famous pastor of the Hillsong Church. There, Hillsong is a church that uh, began in New Zealand, and there are several church plants throughout the country. Um, but there's a guy named Pastor Getz who was recently ousted from his pulpit because of major, ongoing, Tiger Woods-level sexual immorality. And he was on The View because, you know, if you're suffering for Christ, you get to be on The View. Do you all know what The View is? It's a famous... Frustrating talk show. And they were talking about the issue of abortion. And they just, you know, Joy Bayard just asked them straight up, what do you think about abortion? He said, well, you know, which is the wrong way to start that answer. Well, you know, ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. I would want to have a lot of conversations with someone before I start to talk about whether or not abortion is sinful. Which is exactly what they want to hear on The View which is exactly not the answer you need to give. The clear answer, or they asked, is it a sin? And he couldn't give a straight answer. What do you expect? Brothers, we live in an age, sisters, where there are men who are not standing up for the simple truths of Scripture, like the Sixth Commandment. And God brings judgment upon the church because of the unfaithfulness of her leaders. And we see that. We've seen sin in our own presbytery, in our own denomination. I've known pastors who failed. I've known pastors who just wear out. They're just done. And it's not a matter of failure. It's just exhaustion. The church, as Jay Gresson Machen said, is a company of weak and sinful folk. We might not even be sinful. Sometimes we're just weak in our failure to accomplish the mission. Moses at times failed. The failure for which God judged him so harshly was the failure to exalt God as righteous in the eyes of the Israelites. God isn't just one lane, only judgment. God can bring judgment and he can even use those who are receiving judgment in order to also bring power and glory and salvation to the nations. We see this even in our own churches. In our own congregation, we see people who are being disciplined, and we are hearing people profess Christ. Both things can happen, and both things do happen. 
And they are both testimony of God's faithfulness in the church. And when God brings this history to Israel, and he through Moses says, here are what your parents have done. Children, listen. When your parents say, do not do as I have said, don't think, I'm better than you. Or I'm not going to do that. Or I'm different. You're not. Listen. Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3. This is Moses' opening salvo. Don't do what your parents did. But remember, even in the midst of judgment, God showed grace. God showed mercy. He used the people he was judging even to bring about the glory and honor of his name because God is faithful to his covenant. God uses history for these reasons, to reveal and remind us of his faithfulness, to set the stage and prepare our hearts to hear his exhortations, to remind us of our failures and how not to walk going forward, to transform our hearts, our wills, And our future to show us he knows how things are and we do not. His purposes are revealed. And his purpose is to show us that he alone is our deliverer. Man is and cannot be his own deliverer. In fact, what did every Israelite cry out for at some point while they're wandering? Can we please go back to Egypt? More sin, please. More imprisonment, please. They had not been truly changed. Like the prisoner that goes back to jail because it's easier to live there than it is outside. They could not imagine a life free. Brothers and sisters, history is our teacher. And it is therefore our exhortation Our history and our exhortation. It teaches us about God and sin. God must punish sin. He has to because he's righteous. In fact, Jesus is not testimony that God stops punishing sin. That the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not the same God. No. Christ suffers for us. God punishes the sins of his people... Through a sacrifice. Paul makes this very clear in Romans chapter 3. That God in his forbearance passed over former sins and all of the sins of all of the elect, past, present, and future, were placed upon Christ Jesus. Jesus died for Abraham's sins. He died for Adam's sins. He died for our sins. And he died for our sins on the moment or at the moment of his death. Not at the moment of our conversion. Christ has paid the full penalty. This is what our history tells us. If you are ahistorical, you are contrary to the gospel. God punishes sin. This is what our history teaches us. And that rebellion is everywhere, that everyone has sin, and that everyone deserves punishment. And that God punishes sins in his children temporarily so that he might not have to judge them eternally. 
God brings judgment upon you and me now so that we might repent. He does punish eternally. That is hell. And God has and is and will continue to do that. What I'm saying is God must punish sin, but he has options. He can either punish us through Christ, our mediator, a mediator, or outside of Christ. This is what we refer to as real judgment and true grace. Not only do we learn about God and sin, but we learn about God and forgiveness. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And even though Moses did not get to go into the land and he was begging, that's what he was made for. That's why he served. He didn't get to retire in that way. But he did get to see it. And he did get to go to be with the Lord. But Moses was forgiven. And so were these Israelites, those who looked to God for help. Not all of them were. Many of them were not. Some of them were swallowed up in the earth. There are many stories in the midst of the Israelite wandering. But here, Moses does not enter because he is not forgiven. He does not enter because God must exalt himself as holy in the eyes of his people. God does not treat the leaders of the church differently than the sheep. In fact, he holds them to a higher standard. In fact, it is a standard that God himself surrendered to. When you go forward to the book of John, and you read of John the Baptist, the voice crying in the wilderness, I want you to think of John the Baptist like Moses. He took the people of God up to the point of the Jordan. And we see him baptizing Jesus in the Jordan, don't we? But he could take them no farther. John was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets because John saw the one of whom he spoke. And when Jesus came up out of that Jordan, he was telling his people who knew the history, I am the one who will lead you over the Jordan. You see, history teaches us about our Redeemer. And Jesus' name is Joshua. They're both Yeshua. The one, listen, look at verse 28. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of his people, and he shall put them in possession of that land that you shall see. Brothers and sisters, the way we enter into the land is through the only one who was able to lead us across. And once we've been brought into union, what the history of God teaches us is, even as God has kept covenant with us, we are to keep covenant with him. Let's pray.